Welcome to the 19th and final podcast in our sermon series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. This podcast is taken from our live stream Sunday, February 3rd at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Join us as Bruce Bentley finishes our series with a sermon titled, The End of the Matter. So if you're joining us, new and fresh, we are at the very end of a number of weeks, 19, I believe, uh, that we've been uh, studying through this book, this ancient book of wisdom, wisdom literature in the original, aka Old Testament. And now we've come to the end. We're at the very end of the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. So you're kind of jumping in, some of you, and I hope we can help you jump in in a way that it makes sense. Because after all, I've been preaching it, and it may not have made sense anyway. So maybe we're all on the same page, and it's good, and we'll just take that and run with it. Where we find ourselves is the end at, at the end of chapter 12. Most of the verses we read this morning will be on the screen, but no guarantee they all will be, because uh, I sometimes forget when I'm doing things. So there are extra Bibles in the back if you'd like to take one and borrow one or keep one. It's up to you. They are completely free and for you if you want one. What we're going to do is read a few verses of chapter 12, okay? Here's uh, what the preacher, uh, is not, uh, maybe not just the preacher, maybe this is a voice of someone else telling us about the preacher. So all through this series, there's this guy, the preacher. We think it's uh, so, uh, uh, King Solomon of ancient times. Maybe it's somebody else, but it's probably Solomon. Uh, here we have a little bit of commentary. Maybe it's kind of an epilogue. You ever heard that word before? We don't use epilogue a lot in the, at the end of books. You know what that word means? It's words plus words. That's what epilogue means. Really deep, right? Deep meaning there of, of epilogue. So somebody else is adding some words to the words we've already had about all of this vanity and meaningless stuff. So here we go. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So it could be somebody else is kind of breaking in here at the very end of the book to say, oh yeah, this is what he was trying to do, which is actually kind of funny if that's really what was going on. So in case you've been kind of confused or stuck or wondering what's going on, that was what he tried to do. Okay, maybe we should have somebody, I'm just saying, at the end of Sunday, in the back, in case he made no sense this morning, here's the point. Think about it, okay? Just mull it over, maybe not think about it too hard. But here's what's going on. This series may have been frustrating if you've been trying to track with me because of the kind of literature and what are our, what are our expectations. So maybe you don't have clear expectations about the Bible, or maybe if you were pressed, you'd say, the Bible should speak to me, right? 
I should be able to understand it, right? If God has something important, then I should be able to pick it up and, oh, I get it now. So there is a difference in the kind of literature that we, uh, that we like and that we can appreciate, understand. Here's a Western way of thinking, just real quick, okay? I'm not going to get bogged down on this, but what we kind of expect is something that's linear. Most of us do, right? It has a beginning. It has an introduction. There is an argument. There is a body. There, here's the point. Read it. Consider it. Think about it. And a conclusion. Here's where this whole thing is going anyway. It kind of wraps up. That's a Western way of thinking. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he wrote most of the New Testament, uh, even though he's uh, an Eastern by origin kind of guy, he's one of the first Western kind of thinkers. So most of the New Testament is kind of like that. You have an introduction, we're going somewhere, here's the conclusion, here's the thoughts, okay? That's the New Testament, that's Paul, that's what we like. Here's what the rest of the Bible is more like. It's an Eastern way of thinking, especially the original Testament, what we've been reading this whole time. It's not a linear thing, like what we just looked at, it's more of a cycle, it's more of a cyclical thing. So there's different things going on in an Eastern way of thinking. So that's not, you know, Europe, that's not uh, at least what North America is now, uh, that's really everywhere else in the world, okay? So here's what's going on. You ought to consider these things. As I keep bringing them up, I bring them up for a point, for you to think and to mull it over and to consider what the point is of this wisdom that we're talking about. And usually there's kind of a relationship involved in that. In a Western way of thinking uh, that was established with you know, the Greeks and the Romans and, and on from there, uh, we don't have to have a relationship. I just want to learn cognitive intellectual things. Teach me truth. Teach me, give me information. Impart it to me. And then from a distance, I'll consider if it means anything to me or not. And it's not an Eastern way of thinking at all. In fact, uh, the truth is presented more in, in relationship and that takes time. As we consider things, let's sit down and mull it over together. Where is this going? Okay? And there's also kind of finally a, a mystery about it. In, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we keep hearing the same themes. If you've stuck with me this far, if you've read through it, you've seen and heard those themes. And they're repeated in different ways. Sometimes it's repeated the exact same way. But there's a question mark in the sense that it never really gives me the full picture of the point and where God is going and really how he wants me exactly to respond. That's the mystery of it. And that's there because as, as much as we know about God, as much as Scripture is revealed, as much as we learn in our lives, uh, as, uh, as much as we pick up from each other, there, there is still a point where we have to say, but I don't know everything. Or at least all the things I really want to know, I wish God would answer this or that question. I wish he would make, you know, turn the light on. It's not quite there. Maybe there's a light, but it's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of foggy. That's the mystery associated. So the Western way of thinking doesn't like the mystery. It, it, re, it refuses that. It pushes back hard against that. But in this kind of Eastern way of thinking, that's okay. It's embraced. In fact, that's kind of part of it. 
To refuse that is to ignore the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in, okay? So if it's been frustrating so far, it's because what we've been reading is this. So as we wrap up, and as this, whoever this guy is that gives us the epilogue, as he then kind of shines a light back on the things that we've been reading and talking about, we need to keep that in mind as we try to, to, to nail down or focus in on the things that are really most important for us. That's our task in a brief as possible way this morning. So, this sermon, this book of Ecclesiastes, what the epilogue is doing, as we consider what he's saying, we can see that these three things keep coming back up, and I think he's almost shouting them at us. And the first is this. This book gives us wisdom to actually guide our lives. Now, he mentions uh, in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, okay? So what in the world is a goad? So anybody here work with livestock or have in the past, okay? We might have a couple people here. Uh, uh, Anybody work with cattle here? All right, I knew, I was waiting for you. Okay, so I don't know what animal is dumber or smarter, depending on how you look at it, either a pig or a cow. Uh, I work with pigs. I've heard that pigs are intelligent. Mitch, is that correct? They can be trained? But you'd never know that if you work with them. So as a kid, as a teenager, I worked with pigs, okay? And there was a whole lot of times where you want a pig to go from A to B and they don't want to go. So you would grab whatever, this is my goad this morning, okay? And you find something to jab them, to whack them, to kick them. If, if you've got money, you've got something, you've got fancier than this, uh, like a little electrical charge, and you shock them a little bit. It doesn't hurt them, but it wakes them up and gets them moving in the right direction. That's a goad, okay? He's saying these words of wisdom are like a goad sometimes, There are places that God wants you to go that you don't want to go. There are things that you need to consider that you'd rather not. There are realities that are pressing in that you'd you'd rather ignore or work around, right? And the words of the preacher are going like this. Wake up. God wants to get your attention, and sometimes that hurts. And most of the time, it's unwelcome, but he's jabbing into us. So as we look back at these words, it's not all happy and fuzzy and warm and hugs all the time. In fact, most of the time, it isn't. God wants to get your attention. Now, I would imagine in ancient times, they didn't have anything fancy, that they would have to grab whatever they could grab or find, you know, as, as a shepherd, and if you're out in the middle of nowhere uh, and uh, you want to jab or poke or whatever, you found a stick, maybe something like this, to get the attention of the animal that you're trying to lead. So that's, that's a goad. And uh, there's some examples. I don't know where to put this. There, nobody trip on that when you guys come back up. There are examples, at least as I studied, of, of a, a goad or a prod Uh, As I kept reading, as I kept trying to preach what the preacher is saying, uh, all the times are told vanity of vanities. It's not a pleasant thing to keep being reminded that it's a vapor. And in a sense, it's just temporary, it's not permanent, the light that we have. 
In that sense, it's vanity and it's meaningless. And he keeps poking at us. If you read it and you, and you were considering and thinking, you, it, at a point you're like, enough already. I've heard that enough. But the preacher keeps bringing it back up. Why? Because we got to be poked in the right direction. I hope if you've been part of this series, the poking has had its effect. That you, you are thinking about and you are being led in a wise way to consider, yeah, the preacher's right. My life will end. What's the point of it? Where am I going? What is God doing right now and how am I responding while I still have today? That's a goad. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Uh, think about the way that you uh, approach and you respond uh, to God. Are you worshiping him or not? Are you worshiping the things around? Are you being distracted? Are you avoiding God instead of giving worth to God? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider this. God made one as well as the other. We talked, this is a number of weeks ago, but I, I brought up the whole, you know, sometimes we say, oh, it's a God thing, right? Have you heard that? Have you said that? It's always in reference to something positive that we like every time. Have you known anybody go through a difficult period, no matter what the circumstance, something they didn't want? Have you ever heard somebody respond, oh, it's a God thing. I hated it, Right? No. This verse is saying it's all a God thing. There's no avoiding what God does, and he does it all. That's a, that's a goad. There are things about that that I don't like, but I have to stop and consider. what is, if, if life sucks right now, why? Go there. Go to the point and to the place where it hurts, because God has something. There is something going on there. So, those things are goads. What else does he mention? Well, he talks about, in my translation, says, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So some commentators say that's like something sharp on the goad. So he's just kind of saying the same thing. That's a possibility. While others say, no, he's saying something different. In addition to God using a goad to poke at us, that it's not maybe the best way to translate it isn't nail. Maybe it's a peg. So imagine this, somewhere in an ancient person's house, there's a doorpost, there's part of a wall, and they put a peg in the wall to hang their jacket, their coat, their garment, whatever. You know, that's the place to hang it, okay? So you see this morning, this kind of rickety, is this a hall tree, is that what you call it? I don't, sure, all right, that works, right? So we, we hung a couple jackets on here to have a little visual what's going on. Uh, you take for granted how that functions, but you need it every once in a while. It's there, so you can go to it and hang something on it. Now, what if he's saying these words of the wise give us a place to take ourselves, our minds, and to stop and to hang it up and think, okay? To put everything, to, to make everything else slow down and to consider what this wisdom stuff really is about. For everything, there is a season, right? He told us that. We talked through that. And songs have been written about it. What does that mean for you? Stop, hang it up, and consider 
the season you're in right now. What is it that God is trying to do in that time? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Eternity, he's placed it in the hearts of men. One of my favorite verses. Everything, he has made everything beautiful. One of the things that we like to say, probably a lot, is there is nothing wasted with God. Everything beautiful. Beautiful in the sense there's a plan. It's coming together. God is not caught by surprise with something that you've gone through recently, even this morning. Everything comes together. In that sense, there's a plan, and it's beautiful. Nothing is wasted with God. Have you stopped to consider what that might mean in your life, or do you just blow past it? Better is a handful of quietness than two of toil and striving. I brought that one out in particular because we are, as a culture, we are about toil and striving. Our lives never stop. If there's anything that anybody complains about, especially if you're traveling sports and you sit with parents and you hear them talk about everything that they don't like, why am I doing this, yet they're doing it, Ugh, wake up, toil, striving. We're the result of that. We do that to ourselves. What if you unplugged, you hung up the the coat, so to speak, and you began thinking about, what am I doing anyway? And where is my life going? Am I in charge of my life or not? These are things that require consideration. They're, these words are so wise, he says, even to be, to be aware or beware, he says, verse 12, of anything beyond these. So there is something here that he's saying you got to stop, and you got to focus in and do that hard. Before the preaching is over, before this sermon ends, stop. He's poking, and he's calling you to hang it up and listen. Listen to what is going on. So, consider, uh, just a couple more quick things here. Consider, the preacher wants you to slow down. And think about these words, especially words that hurt or disrupt your thinking, even your life. How many times have you had a moment where you say, why me, God? I've heard it a lot. I've said it a few times. And angry times, why, God, do you do this? You know what, a, you know what I think, looking back over Ecclesiastes, you know what I think jumps out of my face when I, when I say, why, why, God? Why not me? Have you thought about that? I mean, why, why should I think I get a pass on everything unpleasant? Why do I think I'm entitled before a holy God who is sovereign to think that I don't have to go through difficult or trying or impossible times? We ask, why me, all the time. Have you ever asked, why not me? I think that's at least one takeaway from this entire book. Not an easy thing to ask, but maybe we should. When was the last time you, you slowed down to, to think, to consider, to be affected by God's truth? Not just jabbed, but to, to hang up the coat. He says he uses words of delight. Now maybe you didn't, you know, through this whole series, you didn't think any of these words are delightful. But again, the Another way to understand delight is it all has a plan and a purpose. It's delightful in a sense that it's going somewhere, okay? So have you thought about anything like that? When was the last time you hung up the coat 
and considered. Now, you know, filling your, your heart or your mind with the idea, with wisdom literature uh, from the original testament, that, that's, that's a chore, that's a task. It doesn't just happen easily or quickly. You have to devote yourself to it. You've got to repeat it, even memorize it. Spend some time in it. Have you heard people talk about, you know what, <clears throat> how come I can remember all these songs from the 80s, but I can't remember where I put my car keys? Anybody my age, help me, help me. Got a witness here? Or maybe, okay, from the 70s, 90s, all music from the 90s is worthless. Everybody knows that. The 80s is where it's at. Big hair rock, you know. How much of my day in the car am I listening to Journey? Am I listening to Boston? Am I listening to Van Halen? Am I listening to Kansas? All these super rock groups. I can still sing along. Because I stopped, in a sense, <laughs> I'm not thinking about anything else, and I'm focusing on those songs, and I still remember them 30-plus years later, even though I still don't know where my car keys are half the time. But I can remember those songs because I dwelt on them. So is it any wonder that we don't spend time dwelling on wisdom literature, on the wise sayings of God? We don't spend time on it. It's not going to be there when it matters most. When you stop and consider and start thinking and you feel a void and where is God? Because you didn't fill yourself, your heart, your mind with God in the first place. Just a thought. It's a choice. If you can fill your mind with Van Halen, you can fill your mind with God. Maybe your thing is Britney Spears, I don't know. But, okay. But am I making a point here? I think that's where this book is leading us. So, let's move on. If I can get that to go. There we go. Another thing. It pinpoints your reason for life. Verses 13 and 14 say this. The end of the matter. Finally. <laughs> sermon's about over. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, obey his commands. The epilogue writer looks back at this entire book. How do you summarize a book like Ecclesiastes? How do you succinctly put that, right? So he looks back and he thinks about it and he summarizes, number one, fear God. Two, keep his commandments. That's it. That's it in summary. Now, that may not be satisfying for you. As I look at your faces, I don't know what you're thinking every Sunday when I look at your faces, but I'm, I'm not getting any feedback right now. So you read that, that's not, that's not altogether satisfying, is it? And it sounds rather legalistic, doesn't it? Just do more and do it the right way. In fact, do a lot. Fear God, keep his commandments. So we gotta dig a little deeper because there's a whole lot more than legalism there. I know that to be a fact. So we got to dig deeper. Hundreds of commands in the Bible. Hundreds of commands. Original Testament and even New Testament. The Bible is filled with commands. We don't know most of them. In fact, most people can't even recite the Ten Commands. Don't put me in a spot because I'd probably screw up too. Okay? Hundreds of commands. And not only do we don't know them, we don't care to know them. Especially all the Levitical stuff. I mean, there is no sign or reason to believe that ancient Israelites ever followed all the commands, or they ever, I mean, 
to any degree. We don't have any clue that they ever did it, much less we're going to do it. Hundreds and hundreds of commands. Why? Every command carries with it the idea that there is right and wrong. Every one. To some degree, in some aspect, a reflection of God's character and God's goodness. Commands exist because there is a right thing to do and there is also a wrong thing that could be done. Obey or disobey the command, you are in the right or you are in the wrong before God. So, we don't like commands uh, because that pushes against our desire and our will, and it establishes that there is such a thing as a right or a wrong. You with me so far? Which is not really a popular thing in our culture today, because I want to define what's right and wrong for me, uh, and even more so. So there is a pushback with our culture. So even though we don't like commands, and we don't like that idea of right or wrong, instinctively, even today, still today, we know that there has to be a right and a wrong. So, here's one reason why we know this. Okay? Now stick with me. Everybody, probably almost everybody, seen pictures or seen the video ad nauseum of this play. I, I will say to you this. I don't think you have to be a football fan to see the video, and I hope this picture captures it good enough, of what happened during this play. The receiver is the guy in black, okay? The defender is the guy in white. The receiver gets plowed over. You see the ball right there, right? He does not have a chance in any way to catch that ball. He is taken out of that play, and there is no flag. So instantly, social media lights up everybody all the fans in the stadium, uh, the players afterwards, even the referees and the commissioner, everybody says there should have been a flag on that play. And there, there was even a petition online, uh, New Orleans Saints fans. Did you see this or hear about this? They wanted legal action to be taken against the league so that they would replay this game in order to get justice, right? We all want justice. There's, all, there's, a, there's a switch in all of us when we see something wrong then we want to point it out. Everybody saw that that was wrong, and then nothing was done about it. It was an unjust or injustice thing that happened. So maybe you're not into football, so let me try to find something else. Let's say you're in a hurry to grab the groceries before the game tonight, which I probably will be in a few minutes. So you run to Cobb or wherever, Hy-Vee. You run in, you get your groceries, you forget the keys in the car, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to be in there for a few minutes. It turns into an hour because everybody else in the world is there. You come back out to your car. <gasps> the car's gone. I let the keys in it, the door is unlocked. Somebody grabbed the keys, started the car, and drove off. Now, you're standing there, you're looking at where your car used to be. Do you need somebody else to come up to you? You know what, you just, what just happened to you right here? That's wrong. Is that necessary? <laughs> Absolutely not. You're infuriated. My car, somebody just stole my car or your bike or your whatever you got in there. There is something in us that says there is a right and a wrong. And, and you, can, you can easily find examples. So if there are some things that instinctively I think we would all agree on are wrong, 
Could it be that God's put that, that instinct in us because of his nature? Could it also be that not only those things but other things maybe that aren't so instinctive anymore? Could it also be that God has said other things that are right and wrong in the way he's planned? Because, again, they're a reflection not of culture and, uh, and cultural change, but because they're a reflection of God's nature and character that never changes. Consider this. James, book in the New Testament, okay, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You don't have to know 600 whatever commands in the Bible. What James is saying is, if you've busted one of them, if there is one point, even if you, instinct, if you instinctively knew it was wrong, or even you didn't know instinctively that it was wrong, but you still broke it and it's God's command, and you disobeyed, one of them, pick it. You've broken all of it. That's the weight of the law and of the commands. And, our, and our, the guy who wrote the epilogue, get rid of that. We've looked at that way too long. There we go. The guy who wrote the epilogue says, keep his commands. So I ask you, how? Does he ask us to do something that is impossible? If you've broken one, you've broken all of them. Not only does he say that, but he also says, fear God. Twice in this book, uh, that, this message, this idea comes up, okay? Uh, first time is chapter 5, verse 7. God is the one you must fear. And we talked about that a little bit, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but we've got to understand when he says fear, uh, phobos is the word, you know, fear, fear of whatever that comes up in English language all the time. When, when that word is used, it's translated in different ways because of the context, okay? There is more going on in the context than just, <gasps> I'm afraid. Now, it's at least that because everybody, even God's angels that we have recorded in Scripture, when I'm in front of a, a heavenly being, I don't stop to consider, should I be afraid or not? I drop on my face, there is something so pure and powerful and holy that there is a fear reaction, okay? So it's at least that when he says fear God, but it's far more than that. That phobos, that word, uh, in Ephesians, well, again, way back in the, or way ahead here in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 21, it also appears that we, the, the word actually is fear, fear Christ. But the translation fills out the picture, we are to submit out of reverence, Ephesians 5 says, reverence to Christ. So fear, yeah, there's an element of afraid, but there's a holy awe and wonder and reverence to God. When our epilogue writer says, fear God, he is, he, that one word fails to fill out everything that what he's really saying to us. God is the holy other. If you come before God, remember who it is. When you speak his name, remember that his name represents all of who he is. Don't come to God and think anything less than God. Fear, reverence, awe, holiness, 
come before him remembering those things he's saying. What life boils down to, our writer says, is a deep, the end of the matter, he says, a deep, awesome response to God. Now, does the preacher succeed in making his point in your life? Do you come to the end of the story, the end of the matter, he says, and do you say, yes, God is worth that holy awe and reverence. And, and because he's that kind of God, I will obey. I mean, honestly, think about it. We're pausing to think. From your heart is your response, yep. Or are you still not convinced? Because there are still questions unanswered. And why, God, do you do certain things? And why, God, am I left out? And why, God, do I have to do without? And, and does he care? And how come I can't see uh, that, that he cares? Do I tremble in fear before a God who doesn't seem like he cares for me? Maybe you thought that. And that's a legitimate question to ask. It takes more before I'll respond in reverence and respect to God, it takes more than just a fear of God. I've got to know that God's for me. And if all he says is fear God and keep his commands, that's pretty cold, isn't it? And indifferent to my needs, to my struggles, to who I am. Is there more? Last one. This sermon tells you about the one who gives life. This epilogue, we find in it, it's, it's a subtle hint. It's, a, it's just a little bit, and it's easy to miss it. But what does he say? The words of the wise, their goads are nails firmly fixed, their collected sayings, where do they come from? They are given by one shepherd. Real easy to miss that, right? Just a couple words. One shepherd. You notice, in your, I think, every translation has shepherd capitalized. You know how many times we talk about how there's these, these sometimes they're big, fat arrows, there's, there's types of Christ, there's, there, there's things that you just can't miss, and sometimes they're little. Perfect subtlety for a book like this. When he's constantly screaming, vanity, vanity, it's all worthless, it's all a vapor. But there's one shepherd. If, you, if you're stopping, if you're hanging up the coat, if you're willing to consider and think about all these other things that are going on, then stop and think about this. There's one shepherd who makes the difference. It's almost a whisper in the text, but we can't miss the, the weight and the significance of it. Now, Israel has a whole history of terrible shepherds. Shepherd meaning leader of the people, okay? It's, it's a metaphor, it's a word used constantly, Old Testament and New Testament. Really bad shepherds. Leaders who acted selfishly, unjustly, corruptly. They preyed on their own people. There's a Lakota word that I think fits really well in understanding who these shepherds were and what they did is wasichu. Maybe you've never heard that word before. That word is, has come to mean or be re, uh, used to refer to people 
who take the best for themselves, selfishly taking advantage of other people. That's wasichu. That word is used, rightly so, for white people for a long time now because of what we've done to native people for generations. And that word also works really well in describing the kind of shepherds. So now we're not, we're talking about Israel. We're not talking about other nations coming in. We're talking about their own leaders being wasichu to their own people. Are you following me? That's what Ezekiel, this prophet that comes after this book of Ecclesiastes, after the kings are gone, and, and he's speaking about God, is speaking through the prophet to his own people, saying, all your leaders are terrible. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, look at all the examples of all the terrible things they've done to abuse you. Those are the kind of leaders you have, you have and you have had, but uh, the uh, Ezekiel and what God is saying through him, he points out, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, he talks about a shepherd who's coming. In fact, he says, there is one shepherd. He uses the same language after Ecclesiastes, to say there's one shepherd. And he says it's David. Now he's talking about King David. And here's the weird thing. King David has already lived and died. He's gone. And he's saying that King David is coming to be the one shepherd. Well, he can't come back. He's talking about a different David, a better than the former David. He's saying that there's one shepherd who's going to come and lead his people the way that God wanted in the first place. One shepherd who loves his people, who, who protects his people, who provides for his people, and even gives his life for his people. One shepherd that's a theme throughout the original Testament. Now, we heard earlier from John 10. We've got to hear it one more time. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Just like what Ezekiel was talking about, of, of those former sh uh, shepherds. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, full life. The Greek word is awesome because it goes on and on. Life on life on life. It's amazing life. Jesus says, I'm the one that's going to give you that life. I am the good shepherd. The one shepherd. The capital S shepherd. All of the original testament. All of what God's saying. He's coming. He's coming. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the shepherd. I love you. I want to give you life like you can't even imagine. And you're never going to find anywhere else. And even if life, if this life in this life proves to be vanity and it ends in a terrible way, I'm going to give you life because I'm the door to even better life. Come in through me and have that life because I lay my life down for you. That's the good shepherd in a way in this quiet little way, Ecclesiastes keeps saying, all is not lost. All is not vain. There is one coming who is the answer. Man, I love it. I hope something stirs within you 
to say, I'll fear a God like that. A God who gives himself for me, who dies on a cross for me, so I can have life. And when he says, obey, like that song we sang about submitting, submitting is, is no longer an ugly word. In response, Jesus, to what you did for me, I'll gladly give it to you. You see, the gospel takes what we see in Ecclesiastes, shines a light on it, and says, this is possible because of the one true shepherd, Jesus Christ. We cannot stop this book or end this book or this series without seeing where he points us to. Now, as we close, think about this. Last week, we talked about... uh, Let me skip that passage there. Oh, my goodness. There we go. Participation in Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we talked a little bit about uh, the significance of not just seeing Jesus in a distant way, uh, not just knowing about Jesus intellectually, cognitively, but as Paul, the writer, says, to participate. This morning, we've got little pieces of bread. We've got little cups of juice. This is a reminder, not just of a religious ritual, But if you know Jesus, you come up and are reminded as you take a little piece of bread and a cup of juice that you are participating in him even even as he has participated in you. That making sense? So there's nothing passive, there's nothing distant about a relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you grabbed a bulletin on the way in. Uh, There is an insert. Please take it out right now. If you don't have one, I don't know if we, Kurt, do we have any left? They're gone? There's one left. Who is the lucky person? (laughs) You can share for this. You don't have to have your own. Here's what I want you to do right now. We have time right now in the service before you leave. What I want to do from here for the next six weeks is talk about what it means to actually participate in Christ. Because Scripture gives us these, all these ways that in a, in a, maybe you're used to hearing you know, spiritual disciplines, and that almost always comes across negative. <laughs> oh, i got to do that. I didn't do that. Oh, you know, I suppose I should do those things. And if that's been your past or the way you've thought about spiritual disciplines, you've got to pitch it right now. In response to the Good Shepherd, we have these ways that Scripture informs us about Ways that we can participate in Christ. When he says that I give you life abundantly, we've got to participate in that. We can't stand back and expect you know, miracle things to happen and then not getting fully engaged with the life of Christ, even as he longs to engage and give and be a part of us. So, you see six different topics that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. If there is something that you've learned that you could impart, that you could help the rest of us in, in maybe experientially, maybe as a part of that discipline in your own life, write it down. If it's too lengthy in the next minute or two to write it down, say, I need to talk to you about this. Great! Part of being the body of Christ is learning from each other and sharing these things. It's awesome. I know you get sick of hearing me. I get sick of hearing myself. This is a way that we can share things, we being all of us, 
and really enjoy and appreciate. Now, if it's one thing, great. You don't have to write all six things, whatever. You don't have to prove anything to us, okay? But if you got six things, great. Write those things down too. Maybe you look at that and go, oh, I don't have anything. But you look at the list, and maybe in response to what we've talked about, you go, I sure wish I knew more about fasting. That kind of seems weird and foreign. I've never done that. I don't know why I'd want to, you know, or that seems like, like other religions or other denominations do that. Why would I want to do that? So those are, those are legitimate questions. Write that down. If there's something I'd like to learn, or I don't get it, write it down. Okay? So, in about two minutes, Kathy's going to play. I'm going to stop talking. I want you to think. Write something down. Kurt's going to come up. He doesn't know this. But <laughs> I don't know if anybody needs that or not. But in a, like two minutes, Kurt, Kurt's going to come up, and you just hand those down to the center aisle, and he'll collect them. So we have something to go on for the next six weeks. So don't hold back on me. Because if you're also thinking, well, yeah, but what I have isn't important. It's not, it's not a big deal. You know, you're being the passive-aggressive thing. Get over that, okay? If you've learned something, then it's probably of value to all of us, at least in some way. Write it down. And then we'll gather them, and then we'll see what we've got and how we can help each other out to have a deeper participation in the life of the shepherd. I'm going to shut up a couple minutes, and then uh, I'll uh, explain communion. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon audio, check out our previous podcast, Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org. Bruce Bentley will be back next week to begin a new series.